Hey, everybody, this is Pastor Peter Watts with the AABC, and I am so excited uh, right now to be sharing with you one of my good friends and colleagues, uh, Natasha Sistrunk Robinson. Uh, Natasha was born and raised in a small town of Orangeburg, South Carolina. She was raised in a two-parent household and being the oldest of three children as an academic scholar and athletic standout. Uh, she earned her bachelor's Bachelor of Science degree in English from the U.S. Naval Academy, uh, which then led to a lot of leadership opportunities and travel um, and lifelong friendships. Later, she then became a full-time student at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary in Charlotte, where she graduated cum laude with a Master's of Art in Christian Leadership. She is a current doctoral candidate at Fuller Theological Seminary, which is in partnership with North Park Seminary. Uh, she is an author, speaker, trainer, preacher, teacher, soon-to-be doctor, and loves mentorship and discipleship, and I call her friend. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Black Church Still Speaks podcast. I'm here for the setup. Thank you for having me, brother. Uh, let's just get started. I, I asked these three main questions. And so mm -hmm. uh, let's just start off with the first one. The first one is just tell us, uh, because there are going to be many people who listen to our podcast uh, within the RCA and even around the country um, that don't know who you are. So tell us a little bit about yourself and your ministry. Yeah, yeah. I grew up in Orangeburg, South Carolina. You said that um, in the South. And so, um, you know, what's unique for some people who haven't heard my story is that town had two historically, has still two historically black colleges and university. And so one of them is Claflin uh, University, one of them is South Carolina State University. One of them is a private school and one of them is a public school. And so I was very much engulfed in like black culture, black history, um, the HBCU life. Um, even as a child, um, it was very excited. You know, it's the thing that kind of made our, our town come alive at certain parts of the year. Um, you know, there were families that were pretty impoverished. And then there were families that, you know, were doing okay. It felt very segregated, though. So there was times, you know, you see a, a few white people. I had several white teachers, but there was not a lot of kids that I went to school with that were white. Um, and so that was, to me, that was my norm. Um, but it was not until I got older to see like how all these different dynamics and understand how we create community and culture, um, the significance that that had on my life. And so I left that place being fully affirmed as a woman, being fully affirmed in my blackness, being fully affirmed in my abilities to lead. Um, as you said, I was I was smart. I loved school. I was a standout in track. Um, so I was a competitive athlete. Um, and so I had this opportunity to go to college, several colleges. I had several full scholarships, um, several college options, end up going to the Naval Academy because my practical brain was saying, I'm the oldest of three children. My family didn't have a lot. Um, I didn't want my parents to worry about me and I wanted to be able to take care of myself. So in addition to getting a great education and a free education, which the Naval Academy offered, but they were also paying me to go to school and they were guaranteeing me a career. Whereas, you know, I knew a lot of college uh, graduates at the time that weren't working. And I was like, that's not, <laughs> that's, that's not gonna work for me. Right, right. So, so they already got this job. Let me go ahead and, and sign up for that. Right? Uh -huh. uh, so I, I did that, served six years as an officer in the United States Marine Corps. Um, and went from there to the Department of Homeland Security. And then God kind of changed my trajectory from military and government to really focusing on um, ministry work full time. Uh, 17 years of marriage now um, and our only daughter. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. 19 years of Gavin, 17 years of marriage. We still, you know, we, we're still yet holding on. Praise God. There you go. Uh, there you go. <laughs> Black love. <laughs> yes, come on. It is resistance, my friend. And you yes. know, uh, so, uh, and our daughter, she just turned 14. So we just returned to North Carolina. Uh, this is our third time as a married couple living in North Carolina. So we just making our home now in Durham. Mm. So okay. that's what's exciting. That's the kind of personal stuff. Ministry-wise, I write. I'm a traditionally published author. So I've published uh, Mentor for Life, Finding Purpose Through Intentional Discipleship. 
Um, so that's a leadership and mentorship and discipleship book. Uh, I've published A Sojourner's Truth, Choosing Freedom, Freedom and Courage in a Divided World, which is like my, it's like a memoir, but it's also very uh, theologically rich. I'm paralleling my life story alongside Moses in the Exodus narrative. Mm. Um, and so that was a rich um, experience. And I've written a Bible study called Hope for Us, Knowing God Through the Nicene Creed, because people need to understand these fundamentals out here, brother. That's what orthodoxy yes. means. Like just you know, the, the, the basics of yes. these are things we're going to all agree on, right? Right, right? About our faith. And so um, I thought those things were important. I have two projects in the hopper that's going to release next year. So I write, which also lends to speaking. Um, small business owners. So I do some leadership executive coaching, some diversity, mm -hmm. equity, inclusion work, um, some de leadership development programs. And then I run a nonprofit called Leadership Links Inc. And we provide leadership education and mentorship uh, for our intergenerational network. But that work has started um, really focusing on and prioritize the leadership of uh, Black middle and high school girls. Amen. Amen. So it sounds like a full, rich life, a yes. full, rich life, man. Uh, so our podcast is called um, The Black Church Still Speaks. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I really want to um, uh, focus uh, with you on discipleship and mentorship. Mm -hmm. uh, but when we think about the black church uh, in its future, uh, what do you see? And, and and I'm asking this question because there was a um, documentary uh, that came out uh, sometime last year, maybe earlier this year, uh, with Louis Gates um, mm -hmm. and the whole PBS special. And it mm -hmm. was talking about the black, the history of the black church. And so mm -hmm. uh, as we think about the black church and its future, uh, what do you see? Yeah, um, I think I see opportunity. Okay. I see opportunity. Um, certainly there are challenges. There, there have always been challenges, but I think a lot of the strength of the Black church is the Black church has a way, a tendency to still grow of, even amidst the suffering, right? Mm. Um, and so I think that doesn't change. That's, that's kind of like a historical marker of the Black church. Um, I was born, and I say born because I, I don't ever in all of my life remember not being in church. So I had always been raised in the church. Uh, we were Methodist. Um, about my junior year of high school, my mother uh, started going to a traditional Baptist church. That's where we were all kind of baptized and again, you, you know, it <laughs> started following the Lord. And so the early part of our marriage, we were in uh, Black church all through college. I was I was um, going to Black churches. Um, and then the last few years, we've been in multi-ethnic and predominantly white churches, because, partially because of the work um, that I do. But I will say this, that the Black church has been the anchor for me. Mm -hmm. um, and I know for some Black people out here that have, for lack of better terms, left the Black church, um, going into these other spaces, say these um, evangelical spaces, which are predominantly white, and been told or talked about the Black church as if it's um, insignificant, emotional, doesn't have depth, right? I just mm -hmm. never believe those things. <laughs> right, right. I just never believe those things. And so when I think about the future, I think about the black church being what it's always been to me, which is an anchor, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's, it's tradition, which, you know, people have different feelings about that. But I think it's also community, um, it's culture, it's, um, it, has a, it has its own story mm -hmm. um, in which we are all a part of in some ways. But I do think it's going to be important as we talk about the future of the black church, that we're not just talking about that tradition and not just talking about um, what's happening in a building. I mean, COVID has made that very evident, right? Mm. And so what I want to start talking about, especially from a discipleship conversation, is the Black church as a people, mm. right? So where are we showing up? How are we showing up? What work are we doing? Um, how are we making Jesus evident and him um, being glorified wherever we as a people go and show up? So it's instead of the building uh, being the focal point, uh, it being the people. It has to be. The focus, it has to be. She's alone. 
when I think about the history of the black church and I think about, uh, you know, the black church and its development during slavery. So the invisible church and then the antebellum church being the institutional church where we get our historical denominations like the AME denomination, the Baptist and all those. Uh, and then we have the civil rights and, and justice uh, movement in, in the black church with King and, you know, all the things that happened around the civil rights movement. But now when we think about uh, today and today's context and, and we lo- even look at the data uh, surrounding church attendance and black people in particular, uh, I was talking to Dr. Davis and we talked Talked about how uh, uh, we we in the past you could connect people to the church even if they weren't members of churches. You people, every black person in the family either went to church or, or was closely connected with somebody that went to church. But today uh, we have generations of people who have no church background, no church culture, no church anything. And so how so when we think about that and we think about what you just said about uh, the black church being the people of God showing up where the people are, uh, mm-hmm. kind of unpack that. Uh, you know, for me. Yeah. 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 So it's very interesting. So part of the tradition and I'm not trying to get you in trouble, but part of the tradition is um, how we do things, Mm -hmm. right? How we do things. And so when you made a statement, like the black church is not just about the building. Well, part of the black church tradition, in my opinion, is about the pulpit. Uh So there's so much power in the pulpit. And those pulpits are most often occupied by men, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But the church is sustained most often by Black women, mm-hmm. right? And so you have this um, reality that uh, we see this, and, and I'm sure you, you know, we've seen the research and some of Barnard's work and all this is that, you know, millennials are leaving and then you have this yep. whole group, they're calling the nuns and, right. you know, you have, and so the Generation Z then, of, of course, is not coming. So my my question and, and challenge and, and um, to those of us that are leaders is like, what happened to the village, mm-hmm. right? And so what happened, some of this, so, so some of it, when I said about the pulpit, some of that is the patriarchy that spilled over. Let's be real right. about that, right? right? But then the other part of it is the is the white supremacy that spilled over as well. And so the, the what I mean about the white supremacy is that there is a culture in that that I just care about me and mine. Uh-huh. Whereas uh-huh. growing up and what black people, we, we come from a culture that by and large has been a communal people. Right. So all those things that you've named throughout history is that this is like we rise and we fall together. We go up together, you know, mm-hmm. and, and even King, you know, at the end, it's like, like I might not get there with you. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and I know that I know I might not get there with you, but I ain't stop me from fighting. Right. Because I love you. And I care about you, right? And so this whole thing that I think um, the deception in in our minds and how we've been discipled into this American philosophy of what it means to be successful, mm. that we get so successful sometimes that we think we more we smarter than God. Uh-huh. We so intellectual, we don't need God, right? And then as long as I'm taken care of, you know, I got my house, my car, whatever, then why I need to care about what all these other Black people are here doing? And not only that, why I even need to be affiliated with them, right? Mm. And so we start talking like some white people who don't love our people. Mm. They just need to work harder. They just need to pull themselves up because then your own people become a they. Mm -hmm. And so I have to ask you then, but do you love your own people, Mm. right? Do you love your own people? And so I'm saying there are all kinds of ways that we are um, hypnotized into the comfort of success in our culture, mm-hmm. which either leads us into, you know, it, it, it costs us to reject the greatest commandment to love God with all our being and to love our neighbor. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's an intentional act and this is where the discipleship come in. There's an intentional choice, a consistent choice to, in spite of what everything looks like, in spite of how comfortable I feel, in spite of what success looks like, in spite of what other people say and whether or not they reject me on social media or otherwise, I am going to, as a disciple of Jesus, as a follower of Jesus, um, as a student, I am going to commit my life to loving God with my entire being and to loving my neighbor as I want to be loved. Mm. 
Mm. That's why I think discipleship calls us to. So when I think about uh, some of the you know things that you said, there's so much I want to unpack uh, right now. Uh, you know, from the pulpit uh, to to the pew, uh, and when we talk about the the pulpit being the focal point as the tradition of the Black Church um, in historically known context, we understand we understand why that was uh, in the context of slavery and mm-hmm. you know white supremacy and all that, um, and why the pulpit became this focal point and uh, Black men became a focal point, but then. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was this again, this hidden kind of uh, this this yeast that was rising, mm-hmm. you know, within it uh, uh, of white supremacy uh, mm-hmm. culture and thinking, where it became a patriarchal. Uh, uh, oppressive uh, kind of structure for black women. And so Mm -hmm. I think about um, uh, uh, how womanist theology uh, Mm -hmm. came about during the liberation theology movement and how black women was like, wait a minute, we have something to say too from Mm -hmm. our perspective. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so when we think about um, uh, 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 mentorship Mm -hmm. um, and we think about the dynamics between men and women in the black church context, you had an opportunity to lead while in the Naval Academy. Mm-hmm. Talk about that and the dynamics that showed up in the Naval Academy versus in the context of the Black church and mm-hmm. what you saw and what, what differences you saw. Because I, I find, I have, a, I have several uh, people in my church who are former military, and they talk about how uh, being in the foxhole with folks that didn't look like them, mm-hmm. uh, uh, it didn't matter but because everybody had each other's back. And so mm-hmm. uh, going to, say, a multi-ethnic church uh, for them was no big deal because they were used to that. So, right. yeah, can you t- talk about, like, how your naval experience, uh, you know, uh, maybe even clash with your, your church experience in a Black church? Yeah, it's very interesting. Um I had been, I was interviewed by one of my classmates, white guy. We weren't friends at the academy. We just kind of reconnected in recent um, year or so. And he has a podcast and he asked me something along those same lines, but he was asking about, you know, basically misogyny and sexism or whatever. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about, you know, just how he, and he was admitted, he was confessing him and his boys, you know, we acted towards women at the academy or whatever. And I said to him, I said, that's how you responded to white women. It was bad. It was horrible. It was ugly. Right. That's how you respond to white women. I said, but you and not but and the truth is, you know, you didn't see us at all. Right. Mm. So really, we were invisible in that space. And quite frankly, a lot of the black guys weren't looking at us in that space um, unless they were looking for a good time, but not for a relationship. You understand what I'm saying? And so um, that's just kind of what that culture was like um, in college. And then going into the the Marine Corps, um, you know, most of my professional work has been with kind of high testosterone, (laughs) you know, male leaders. And on one hand, I mean, you know, uh, we always have this posture as people of color, black people that are professional and leaders, you know, you got to be twice as good, you know, work twice as hard, you know, that thing. And so I went in with that attitude. Right. And so I was I was doggone good at my job. I was competent. Right. And so that gets you a lot of respect and not just in my job, but also in my physical fitness and all those things. So when you're out there, you can you can do you can hold your own in those things Um, that kind of raises your level of respect. And then you carry yourself in a certain way that's like you're not going to talk to me, uh. <laughs> like you know, like I'm a nobody, right? right? Because, you know, and, and so, um, so I didn't have as much of those um, issues. I'm not going to say it didn't matter. I think it, it does matter. I think how we engage with people matter and our different experiences matter. And so, um, you know, there were certainly challenges, but I think my, my, my contrast to that is when I was in the black church, I wasn't leading in a black church, right? Mm-hmm. I grew up in a black church. I was a child in a black church. And so I think a lot of times women that, um, you know, were called to ministry, you know, and they're starting to try to push the envelope, whether they get into the pulpit, whether they get educated or whatever, I think they, 
we've had different challenges. Like a lot of my research and work is not about the challenge of women who are, for example, um, called to ministry or seeking ordination. Because that's a, to me, that's a different, it's an important challenge, but it's not my story. You understand mm-hmm. what I'm saying? My, my story has been that of a leader and having, that's my spiritual gift. I, I knew that when I was a child. And so um, being able to do that in very different ways. And what does that look like in the church? And it has been um, a challenge. It's been a challenge for publishing, mm. right? Because when you talk about leadership in Christian publishing, you expect the white man to speak into that. Can you mm. name five women that are speaking into leadership in, in Christian books? Right. Right. Nah. <laughs> right. Right. And so you go to the academy and, you know, the women that are speaking there, they're most of the time speaking into specialized things. Right. 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 Um, they're, they're not New Testament scholars. I mean, by and large. Right. They're not Old Testament scholars, by and large. They're not teaching um, the languages, by like these things that we consider like the anchors from an academic perspective, um, you know, that, that's not dominated by women and certainly not women of color, you know. And so you take a black woman like me, like they'll let you talk about race. You know, they'll mm-hmm. let you talk about women as whatever, because then they can put you in a specialized field. But you're not in a classroom where every single seminarian and certainly every pastor has to be touched by you. And I, I submit until that happens, we're going to always have this problem with how we um, uh, uh, approach women in leadership and specifically how we approach women of color in leadership. I've never uh, really thought about that deeply uh, in that way in um, in women being New Testament scholars or the lack of women being New Testament scholars or language. Like I had a, uh, a woman um, when I was at Western Seminary, great uh, um, uh, teacher who taught uh, New Testament Greek. Um, and she was phenomenal. Um, uh, but that was the um, only female teacher that taught like one of those, like you say, anchor subjects to other female teachers that uh, taught were, you know, it was the the marginalized subjects, you know, the specialized, you know, things. Mm-hmm. And especially there were no women of color that I've had in seminary, um, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah. Um, and so, so when we think about discipleship in leadership, mm-hmm. uh, uh, oftentimes it is, it's about it. We're going back to the pulpit. It's about leadership, uh, uh, in the pulpit or from the paid professionals, but talk about discipleship from the pews and leaders in the pews. And so it, it's the whole idea of every member is a minister. If, we, if we're really living into the New Testament reality yes. of you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, like everybody's supposed to be a priest yes, uh, uh, in the church. So mm-hmm. why aren't we developing leaders in the congregation mm-hmm. versus only focusing on those in the pulpit. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so Peter tells us, right, this priesthood of all believers, right? That's that's how the church is supposed to grow and flourish. Um, and so I think, you know, we just need to be honest about things. I've said for many years that we have a New Testament church in America, United States of America, with an Old Testament model. So mm. we, we quite often, sometimes we, we treating, we're treating our pastors as priests of the Old Testament when Jesus is our high priest. You know what yes. I, mean? I don't have to go to you. I don't have to go through you to get to the Holy Spirit. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Right. And so I think, you know, until so that's a theological issue that we have to address. And I think the leadership has to address that, um, because, quite frankly, when we prop people up in that way, you know, people like it. Mm-hmm. That's, that's why I like it feels a, good. Yes, it feels good. It's a, it's a pride and ego associated with that. You know, that you the go to man, you the go to woman and, you know, kind of the sun rises and falls, you know, on your words. Um, and so there's a temptation in, even in that, that we need to be, you know, mindful uh, of for those of us who uh, get to speak in that way. But what I would love to see, and, and this is the reality, I think it's twofold. Number one, seminaries train pastors to preach. Seminaries do not train pastors to lead. Mm. So just because you're a great preacher doesn't mean you're a great shepherd. Just because you're a great preacher and you can execute a text doesn't mean you know how to build teams. Mm -hmm. Doesn't mean you know how to multiply ministry. Mm -hmm. 
you know, all it means is that you studied and you can preach. Right. 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 And so um, I think we need to understand that. And so there's an accountability, I think, that a church can have for their pastors to challenge themselves to grow as leaders mm. because the seminary doesn't do that for them. So that's mm-hmm. one thing. But I think also, again, this culture that we have a kind of this individualism, you know, what we see throughout the New Testament, especially, is that more of a team model of leadership, more of a shared approach of leadership. So, you know, this is kind of where some of my military training kicks in. So I, so I pay attention to this stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. Like Jesus picked 12 and a group of women. Jesus didn't go about this by himself. Could he have? Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. But he chose not to. He's like, let me raise up some successors, not saviors, but people that's going to carry on my work when I leave here. Right. right. And so he said, let me go ahead and start preparing them, train them. Jesus, teach me how to pray. When you pray, this is how you do it. Right. Mm-hmm. And then he modeled things. You know, he modeled things. He taught stories. He asked questions. And so Jesus was all the time. He's teaching his people, his followers, as he's, you know, living and doing life among them. And that was a team leadership model. And so there are strengths and weaknesses within that team. And the idea is that they're coming together. And this is a discipleship thing too, that iron sharpens iron, right? That, right? that there are things that we are bringing together in our communities, whether this church or small group or whatever. Um, and we are going to all be better because Pete, you have something that I don't have, mm-hmm. right? We all have like, what the, what does Paul write about? One spirit, one baptism, right? Yeah. But we all have different gifts. And so the spirit is at work at each of us in different ways. There are things that I do very, very well. There are things I'm horrible at, right? Mm-hmm. And so th- if I have someone in my, in my community though, that's great at the things I'm horrible at and everyone, you know, Paul talks about this metaphor of the church being the body, right? So if everyone is doing their part, right? The body is healthy. But what happens is we most of the time function like a cancerous body. We only got a few Mm. strong parts, right? And we we think it's uh, acceptable. But Paul says, those of you that are weak should be esteemed with higher honor, Mm. right? We should be putting in more work to those parts to make sure that that, because you had a hang toenail, that, that feels horrible. It's a small thing, but it may, it kind of mess up your whole day, a paper yeah. cut, right? Yeah. A, you know, these small things that can mess, you have a headache, a migraine, right? So any part of your body that's not functioning as it should, it's a detriment to what the entire body can do. And this is why Paul says that we need to all be at work under the submission of the Holy Spirit to do the things that God has called us to do. And so I think, you know, the leadership of our of our pastors, um, challenging them in that, challenging them to create um, churches that are, what I would say, teaching churches. And when I say teaching, I don't mean just, you know, speaking the right thing from the pulpit and Bible study, which is great. We definitely need to do that. But I'm saying also training people to lead. I've been doing Mm -hmm. this mentoring thing for a long time. And what I found, brother, is that so often people don't want to do it not because they don't care, they feel that they will fail because they don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. And so if you just take the time to train them, they go out with more confidence and excitement and they'll commit to it over a long period of time. But we are so busy you know, too often running programs that we're not being intentional in identifying and training leaders in the pew to do the work of the Great Commission that God has called all of us to do. Yeah. Yeah. That's so good. That's so good because it just made me think about this past year, COVID, um, shutting churches down. You know, you know, we talked about this. Right. Right. Shutting churches down. And then it forced pastors to have to rely on the people in the congregation if they were going to survive. Yeah. And so now the people had to learn how to lead from their homes and if churches weren't investing in their people, some of these churches started closing exactly. or or was waiting to get back into the building. But I don't think the world is going back to the way things were. And I don't think the church, uh, in particular, the black church, can go back to the way things were. There are some things that we can, of course, continue to hold on to that are foundational, but there there has to be a front-facing uh, a way, a, a new way um, uh, to be able to, uh, again, release leaders from 
within the congregation. And so, yeah. yeah. So, so you, you're doing that, you're doing that work and you, and, and, and I know that. And, and that's the thing, like, I remember when COVID first hit, someone was like, someone who didn't know me well, clearly, they was like, well, what are you going to do? I'm, I'm going to do the stuff, same stuff I've always been doing. Mm. Right. Right. You know, because if you're already doing the work, then the work doesn't stop just because the world did. Right. Right. If you're already doing the kingdom work and it's prioritized rightly. Right. Um, and, and granted, let's let's just be clear. Like some of this is about privilege, too, because if you don't have technology, then then it's hard to do that. Mm-hmm. Right. If you don't you know, you don't have a way to keep people safe. It is hard to do that. So I'm speaking. I understand I'm speaking from a place of privilege in that that we had the technology to continue to do what we were doing face to face in a different space. But my point is we already had people on mission. Mm-hmm. Right. We already had people on mission. And so changing the platform the, of the way we did it did not matter. And you know this, too. It's like the whole the New Testament church. These were house churches. Yes. Right. Like the way we do church now, it's very foreign to what we see in the in the good book. And I understand these are two different cultures. But what I'm saying is, is that we what we see even, you know, just kind of was reading through the book of Acts. Like the church was growing by the thousands, brother, yes. in a very short amount of time. So there's something that w- they were doing right there. And, and my thing is, is that there was a lot of reliance on the Holy Spirit yes. and not so much on our effort. Yes. Yes. See, and that, and this is why uh, I believe in studying the black church um, to help us look at how to move forward because if we study the history of the black church and the different dynamics that is not just a, a one linear kind of history it's a it's a dynamic history and so even looking at the the invisible church uh you know if we studied the invisible church the church that was birthed out of slavery and how they met in the hush harbors and you know and they met in all like taking those ideas and saying guess what in today's world there's a new hush harbor that might be your backyard that might yeah. be at the park it might be at the coffee shop or it might where well, it might be in your house or whatever but being able to look again look back at our history and identify those things to be able to say oh well maybe this isn't foreign to us mm-hmm. maybe it's something that we can actually recapture uh, so it doesn't feel like or look like we're trying to grab hold to, uh, you know, some uh, white dominant uh, Western narrative of like house church. Let's do mm-hmm. house church because that's mm-hmm. what the dominant culture is doing. And so mm-hmm. then people don't want to do it uh, mm-hmm. when in reality, it was something that we actually did do. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, even when I think about the history of the black church in, in sight, like here in L.A., um, and knowing that a lot of these churches started in some pastor's house, a Bible study that they were having. Right. So this and, is the thing. They, yeah. Yeah, this is the thing with that. Like a lot of times, so people who read some of my material and hear me speak sometime, I'll talk about Mary. So most people know Mary. So Mary's a white woman. She's a white Presbyterian woman who mentored me, discipled me when I was a student at the Naval Academy. So here I am getting discipled by Mary, you know, intentionally praying with me, intentionally teaching me the scriptures or whatever. At the time, though, I'm going to Black churches, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to Pentecostal churches. I'm going, and, and I'm singing on the gospel choir. So all, I'm hanging out with all the black kids, but this is the place where I'm like, and being intentionally taught, you know, and that was early. Because uh, mm-hmm. I, even though I grew up in a church, I, I feel like I accepted Christ, if you will, entered in a personal relationship in this transition to prepare to go to college, okay? So Mary was the first one that did that. But I think about, the first black church I chose to be in as an adult, right. Mm -hmm. Which was a traditional black uh, Baptist church. Uh I was discipled there very intentionally. It just looked different. So this is a thing because I think sometimes we feel like we have to have all the answers. We have to be an expert in the thing before we can move and do whatever God has called us to do. But that's not the case. Again, look at Jesus' model. So one thing Jesus did, he told a lot of stories. That's what that's basically what a parable is. It's a story with a message, a moral, mm-hmm. right? He told a lot of parables. But Jesus also asked a lot of questions. Hey, do you want to be made whole? Right. Hey, what do you want me to do for you? Mm. <laughs> right? Um, who touched me? <laughs> right? Like he's, yeah. just, he's out here asking a whole bunch of questions. And so when I was in this black church, I remember, and again, I'm like the only one of maybe two or three women in a group of a whole bunch of men, right? And some of them ordained elders or some of them deacons and that thing. And, and it would be something like this. You at the house having dinner and somebody will throw out a question and be like, what you got to say about that? 
Mm-hmm. Work, work with that, right? And then mm-hmm. everybody starts flipping pages in the Bible to figure out, like, but hey, what you mean? And so, and that's how it went. We did that for years and years and years. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll be at work in the Marine Corps, and you know, because somebody these like military people, right? And I get something in my inbox, and it's like, so I was reading yesterday, <laughs> and this is what David said about and so i was wondering and they're just dropping in your uh, inbox and uh, then and so then that turned and like 20 people on the feed right and then uh, and over the course of two weeks that kind of turns into you know a, a whole bunch of conversation in the inbox and yeah. then you know two weeks later we talking about something else and so discipleship looked different my point is there was no one person like i'm in charge of this thing right. and a lot of it was about the questions that we asked and we were finding out the answers to those questions together Mm-hmm. in community mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so if i threw something at you then you say hey well let me take that and raise you one up because over huh. here paul you know paul paul no. was saying um, but, but hey but but let's did david have something to say about that right and so this and this is kind of how that iron sharpened iron yeah. we grew and we challenged each other and so i want to encourage us to to do that i will also say this too this is something that's very um much a burden for me that I'm being intentional about, especially everywhere I go, but especially in my nonprofit work is we have to get back to intentionally engaging each other across generations. Mm. That used to be a norm, mm-hmm. right? Like, you know, you just go to church and you and your grandma and um and your aunts and all y'all are kind of sit on the same pew because that's what y'all family did. And so, you know, if you fall asleep, your grandma might hit you. Right. right. Or you you making too much noise. You know, somebody might say, hey, open your Bible. Hey, stop kicking your legs on the seat. Hey, you're not going to eat in church or maybe you do eat depending on how old you are. But my point is, is like there was multiple people in your own family holding you account. And this is how we reverence the Lord. This mm. is how we show up at church. This is how we, you know, and so that was happening at the church building, but it was also happening in the home, you know, at mm. the dinner table. Like this is you, you don't talk to your mama like that. Right. Right. You know, and and so that was happening in your family. But then that was also happening with the stitching of your family. Right. The neighbor down the street. Like, so I I remember the times I, you know, there were a few times I wasn't acting right. Right. And get a spanking right Right, on the neighbor down the street. (laughs) And then you upset because, you know, another one coming because Mm -hmm. you was wrong. And your parents already gave them an unspoken authority to check you. Mm -hmm. And then you want to embarrass them in public. So there's going to be a consequence for that. And so my thing is, is that there is a wisdom and a safety and a covering of protection when you have old people connected with young folks who don't know what they're doing out here in these streets. Mm-hmm. And so we got these young people floundering in every way. Yeah. Right. They just lost a lot of them in every way you can imagine. And if I just looked at my social media feed and entertainment and the television shows and everything, I be like, this is a madhouse we a live in. Mess. Mm-hmm. It's a mess, right? Because I suspect there's not enough older people speaking wisdom and providing protection and standards for our young people. I know the the church at large, the big C church, I know why it's losing its authority in America, Mm -hmm. Uh, but why has the black church in particular, why does it feel like it has lost its authority to speak to the moral conscience of the black community in some, in some respects? So when, when we look at social media, when we look at this generation of young people, uh, what, what happened? Uh, why, why, why aren't they listening to the older folks anymore? Or, or why aren't the older folks speaking into uh, anymore? Or, or am I missing something? Why is there this gulf, this gap? And, and what do we do to, uh, to repair that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there are some challenges. Yeah. And I think, so there's a challenge of consistency. And what I mean by that is, the thing that most young people are listening to now is in their hand. Mm. And it's in their hand all the time. Mm. Right? And that's the technology. Mm-hmm. You can access anything all the time. Mm-hmm. And I remember when we first started, I've always been a proponent of mentoring within the context of a small group, discipling within the context of a small group. And I remember when I started training um, some, some guys a few years ago about this for my nonprofit, one of the gentlemen said, he said, I'm clearly aware that an individual can't stand up to a game. Mm. Right? And so this idea that 
there is a force. There is an influx of information. These kids, see, discipleship is not a uniquely Christian word. Understand that, right? right? There's nothing innately Christian about it. It's just about what you're submitting to, what you're becoming apprentice of, you know, what you're becoming a student of, what you're going to follow. And so what my point is, is that every day, all day, they're being told who they are and what's important and what they're going to follow. So if you are an older person and you're only talking to them once a week, if that, if you're lucky, maybe they see you, maybe they see grandma and them once a month, mm. right? You don't, you like one person trying to stand up against a game. So mm. on one hand, there has to be more intentionality. And that's my thing in the book, right? Mentor for life, finding purpose through intentional discipleship. Like this doesn't just happen. You have to intentionally show up. You have to consistently show up and be present with these people. So I think that's a large, you know, you know, aside from the technology challenge, I think that's that's part of it. Um, what I've seen, too, in my work is that we know without saying that we need each other. Right. The Bible says it's not good for, for man to be alone. Right. Mm-hmm. So we know that we need each other. We know that. But sometimes we either don't say it or we won't ask for help. So this is my observation, doing, doing, teaching and training people in mentoring and discipleship for, I mean, it's been formally, right? Like as far as in a published life world, it's been, you know, probably 10 years now at this point. Um, the young people want help and they want older people to speak to them, but they won't ask for it. Right. Even when the help is available. So my daughter just turned 14. Mm-hmm. I have told this child, Pete, from the time she could even talk. We don't use the word can't. Right. Mm-hmm. Either you can do something or you ask for help. From the time she was a little weak, I've always said you you either can do it. And if you feel like, hmm. Ask for help. Right. And the whole point is, if you ask for help in a place and safety where the help is available, then your help turns into a can. Mm. Here she is struggling with algebra on virtual school. I'm not on virtual school. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm not on virtual school. So I'm checking. Why are these grades looking mm. like this? Mm-hmm. She started to cry. Mm-mm, I need you to use your words. I need you to use your words. Right? Why did you not ask for help? Mm. Which is readily available. Mm-hmm. After the tears stopped, I was embarrassed. Mm. Why? I was embarrassed to, to, to feel like I wasn't missing the mark mm. or I didn't know what to do. Mm. So I'm saying, so these young kids, they don't know, even when you told them how to ask for what they need Mm -hmm. sometimes, right? And then you have the older people over here saying, oh, well, one, you know, some of them just like, oh, I'm retired. I'm done with that, which is Uh not a biblical concept. But then some of them, (laughs) you know, some of them is kind of like, I don't know what to do, which is a leadership and teaching thing, right? Mm-hmm. If they tell us we don't know what to do, oh, well, there's a fix for that, right? Yep, yep. Then you train them, right? You train yep. them, right? Uh, or, um, and, and what I've seen too, they might not say, I don't know what to do, but they may assume they don't want to hear what I have to say. Mm. But what I'm saying, those latter two, those latter two, if the heart is open and available, we can work with those. Right. Right. And so because because those are, in my opinion, are, are are training issues that you can address, because what I've seen is that when I put people through training. Almost immediately, sometimes, but certainly the longer time I spend with them, the confidence level goes up. And I'm not mm-hmm. saying confidence as pride or confidence in self. Mm-hmm. But look, listen to me, brother. Right. Nobody wants to do anything where they feel like they're going to be a failure. Right. So set them up for success. Remind them, hey, results not dependent on you. The results is dependent on the Holy Spirit. 
Mm. I'm not asking you to fix nobody. I'm not asking you to save nobody, right? That's what the Holy Spirit does. I'm asking you to plant seeds and water. Can you do that? Can you go out and labor, plant some seeds and water and trust that God will get the increase? Can you go do that? Okay, yeah, I just don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. Oh, we can train you for that. Mm-hmm. And then once they understand, oh, I don't have the pressure for the results. And there's some basic things to go, go about, you know, preparing for this work. I see the confidence increase almost every time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so crazy because uh, in American culture, and I would say um, one of the characteristics of white supremacy is that results oriented, the numbers, you know, right. the data, you know, right. you got to have the numbers. You got to have, if you're, if you're successful, you got to prove, you know, right. prove it by the data. Right. Right. Um, and so we prove your worth, prove your worth. Right. And not trust that God's going to get the credit for it. Cause you know, internally we want the credit. Like we did this kind of right. thing. Right. But also working, it's a difference in posture, right? Working out of your being, mm-hmm. not working to get God to like you, mm-hmm. not working to get God blessing. Right. So when you're up, it's cause, cause again, that's a theological point. Yeah. Right. I'm being first because I am a disciple of Christ. This is what I do. Yep. This is how I show up. Right. I'm not doing it so I can get perks and bonuses from God. Those will eventually come. But thanks be to God, you know, when you do. But that's not the motivation for You know, and I think I think like you said, discipleship is not a uniquely Christian word. And as you were talking about that, I think about how uh, we have been discipled by American culture. Absolutely uh, right. And- so here's the thing, bro. Here's the thing: if there's and and you say about effectiveness, because if if the church, hear me now, because people don't like this, if the church doesn't look any different. Mm than the world mm-hmm. there's no power mm. i was just coaching a lady this morning this is just happened to be a christian client who was going through first john chapter chapter four i believe test the spirit try the spirit see if it's of god if i go to your church and i listen to your pulpit and i and i watch the actions of the people in that community, and I can't discern a difference mm. between how they showing up and doing life in the world and how other people who don't belong to God showing up and doing life in the world, mm-hmm. then, then th- that's a problem. Yeah. You don't have any authority to speak. Yeah, because because now you're competing with the other disciple, the the folks that know how to disciple people. As you were saying, I was thinking about uh, uh, in social media the uh, Bayhive, you know, Beyonce that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. discipled uh, Rihanna's mm-hmm. Navy, mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, Nicki mm-hmm. Minaj's Barb's. Th- those mm-hmm. are disciples, yes, sir, right? and they are committed to yep. following their leader. That's uh, right. <laughs> but the church has. So trying to compete with trying to compete with that, you're not going to be able. But if we can disciple and do something different, like you said, in the power shows, we can then you know, have a yes. But, but let me tell you something. Let me tell you what I see because I deal with these young kids in my nonprofit. So I'm I'm dealing with mm-hmm. middle and high school girls mostly in my nonprofit. You know what I see or what I hear from them? There are several of them that will tell you quickly. I love Jesus. I got a problem with his church right now. Mm-hmm. Now, again, again, there are some challenges there, but I'm telling you as their mentor, mm-hmm. as someone who loves them, as someone who try to draw them closer to Jesus, not farther away. Right. I'm not trying to defend. I'm not trying to be apologetic with them when somebody make a statement like that with me. Right. right. I'm trying to listen. I'm trying to hear the heart of a person. I've had more than one of my young people, uh, people tell us, tell, tell us that. My daughter says that sometimes, not about the people that she's been around in her personal life, but if she would look out, mm-hmm. you know, to what's projected on a national stage. Yeah. Problematic. Right. And so. What I find with these young people, what they see, I think, and, and again, we're not perfect people. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying about how we show up for them. 
there's a passion about our relationship with Jesus that they don't see with some of these other Christians, professing Christians that they look at. Mm-hmm. And so, so to your point, if somebody is a ride or die person of the beehive, right? Mm-hmm. And they're investing time and their treasures in the beehive, right? Mm-hmm. To some degree, that, that could be idol worship, right? It's just like if you're a person who, you know, you got your sports team and you ain't right. never going to miss a game, right? Right. right. That, that, that's adultery, right? right. It, because Especially if you're not giving God that, that you know, that equal mm-hmm. amount of time, right? Like you can't figure out how to, you know, make that time for prayer or Bible study or service, but you will not miss this thing over here. That's adultery, right? right? And again, I'm not saying we don't, you know, I love music. Like I love theater. You know, I love sports and those, those type of things. But what I'm saying is, is, you know, what's valuable to you by where you invest your time, talent and treasure. Yep. So when I look at your life and I'm talking about not just me, but like God, when God looks at your life, you can say, I love you. I love you. I love you. And, and I heard someone say this morning, I think I was listening to a sermon. Love to God is spelled out. James tells us in, in a four letter word, obey. Mm-hmm. Right. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so if God looks down at you, right, and says, where's where's she investing her time? Does that reflect the love of God? Where is she investing her talent, the things she's good at, her skills? Does that mm-hmm. reflect the love of God? Where is she investing her, her talent, I mean, her money, her treasure? Does that reflect the love of God? And so if it doesn't, then that says that you're worshiping something else. Mm. And so what I, my, my point here is that, you know, these young people are looking around and the behavior that they're seeing by Christians communicates to them that you're worshiping something or someone else besides Jesus. Mm. And so it's not about whether it's appealing or whatever. This is the thing, bro. The Holy Spirit draws people yeah. by the thousands, by the billions, by the millions across thousands of generations. That's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit is consistent in that, right? So I don't have to give people smoke and mirrors and entertainment mm-hmm. and this and other to think that I have to somehow perform to get the results that the Holy Spirit been consistently getting without all that foolishness, right? Yeah. yeah. That's all I'm saying. And so what I think young people need to see is authentic life mm. of someone who's passionate about the the one that we say that we love mm-hmm. and that's what draws them yeah and, and keeps them cost money and they don't cost money and it keeps them too that's yeah. another thing it's one thing to draw people yep. but to keep them yep yep who this has been good this has been good i uh uh i want to uh, personally thank you uh because um during covid our church um went through your book hope for us yeah Um, and we did the nicene creed and let me tell you that sparked something in our church uh which led to this monday night bible study book study uh that we have been doing for over a year now um and uh and interestingly enough it's been the women in the church who have committed uh, and, uh, they feel, uh, strengthened, uh, they feel knowledgeable, uh, they feel equipped, uh, after going through the Nicene Creed saying like, this is what, this is, you know, what Dr. Davis talks about in terms of, uh, reaffirming, uh, the church reaffirming her biblical identity. This is, this is where it was. And then now we're in this, we've been in this, um, you know, I don't know, four or five months study of my grandmother's hands uh, and mm-hmm. talking about. Trauma. I just started reading that. Yeah, I just started reading that. Yeah. And healing. And, and let me tell you, they've opened up to me. And I would say, I, I was telling my wife, I said, I said, I don't have a church no more. I got a women's ministry. I leave. <laughs> and let me tell you they've opened up to me uh as they're like they've never opened up before i've opened up to them like i've never opened and like these are my disciples and they're now we are in the midst of talking about call what is your call and now everybody in church is wrestling with what god is calling them to outside of what we do on sunday morning and so people are showing up saying god's called me to help people retirement god's called me to foster you god's calling me to the homeless god's calling me to like all these different things uh that uh 
all these different ministries that we don't have at the church. So we don't have men's ministry, children's ministry, women's, mm-hmm. we don't have none of that traditional, mm-hmm. you know, the ministries. Uh, we have what God is calling people to now. And, mm-hmm. and so, and it, and it started and launched because uh, they reaffirmed their, uh, the church's biblical identity through the Nicene Creed and that, and that kind of study. So thank you. Thank, you, Thank so you so much for that encouragement, brother. You know, I be out here writing in the dark, right? <laughs> and you won't ever know. You know, you and my husband tell you, he be like, sometimes I be discouraged. I be like, oh God, that's a lie. You know, mm-hmm. and so, and you never know how God is going to use it. And I, I remember um, I I was on a podcast with Sarah, uh, Sarah Jakes Roberts so not too long ago. They were Her book club was reading A Sojourner's Truth, uh-huh. my book there. And, and she said something to me that was very encouraging she was like, you discipling people when you sleep. And I was like, praise God. Mm-hmm. Praise God. Because my call, I didn't always know this, but part of my call is, is the is the pen. Yes. Right? That's a discipline I have to cultivate because I I know now. I didn't know that, you know, mm-hmm. before. Mm-hmm. What would you say uh, is the larger gift that the Black church brings to the Big C church? What is the gift of the black church to the big C church in in your view? Perseverance. Hmm. Got to persevere in the faith. When you think about it, it made no sense. You know, some people craft this narrative of, uh, oh, Africans, you know, they, they needed, you know, to come here for slaves to get Christianity. You and I, we done done some early church history studies. We know that's a lie, right? Like, like, right. like Christianity didn't start there. Again, get my hope for us, Nicene Creed Bible study. You understand that it was on the continent before the Africans came here. Praise God. So, <laughs> you know, but my point is, is that once they came here, for those who were fed a brand of Christianity, right? Mm-hmm. It's amazing that they believed at all. Like, really? It's amazing they believe that all. And, and I think about Pete, the generations of our people, our ancestors that lived and died in slavery. I write about this in Sojourner's Truth, that did not see freedom in their lifetime, but lived with the hope that God was able to do it because of what God had done for the uh, Israelites in the book of Exodus, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so th- they had a hope, they had a faith, faith, hope, love, these three, the greatest of these is love. God is love. And so the fact that we hold on, God is the one who keeps us, but that we keep holding on to the one who can keep us. And in by and large, even when everything is stacked up against us, even when the word has been manipulated and used to tell us that, you know, to hate ourselves, like some curse of ham and all this foolishness, right? To hate ourselves. And when it's been deceived, we've been deceived and manipulated and abuse, spiritually abused some people, right? By the by, this book, that God has been faithful in revealing himself to us in such a way that we are still yet holding on, mm. Right? I think that's a faithful, the, the faithfulness and perseverance in that is an encouragement and a source of hope. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you so much. Where where can uh, folks pick up your books, whether it's a journey, Truth Night, uh, mm-hmm. Hope for Us, or even mm-hmm. a Mentor for Life? Where can they pick those up at? Yeah, I say just go to my website, Natasha, uh, N-A-T-A-S-H-A-S for Sistrunk or Sam, S. Robinson, R-O-B-I-N-S-O-N.com. When you go there, you can find me on all my social media channels. I'm on Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, but then all of the books are listed there. Um you can buy Mentor for Life and Sojourner's Truth anywhere books are sold, but Hope for Us is only available on um, Amazon. And I also will say this because we talked about discipleship and training. For Mentor for Life, I created specifically a leader's training manual. So for pastors and churches and small groups and stuff that want to actually train leaders how to become disciple makers, um, I created a leader's training manual for that. And that's only available on Amazon. And so you don't have to even put prepare. I mean, it's agendas, it's homework, it's pat scriptures for reading. It's mock, it's a session like this is how you do a mock, you know, Bible study, a mock small group session. So it's a very, um, you know, a lot of these tools I create for the benefit of the church. And so that's where you can find all those. 
Excellent. Excellent. We'll put all these uh, links and things in the show notes for people to uh, click on them and go to. And so again, I want to thank you so much for being a guest on our podcast, The Black Church Still Speaks. Thank you. Speaks on discipleship. Yes. Amen. 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 We want to thank our guests for rocking with us today. Now, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. I said our because this podcast is not a one-person show. There are some folks in the background who make this happen each month for our listeners. I want to give a shout-out to our sound engineer, Garrick Steyer, logo and graphics by Warrior Design, our executive producer, Annalise Ratcliffe, and our assistant production manager, Lorraine Parker. I'm your host, Reverend Peter Watts with the AABC, and this is The Black Church Still Speaks. <laughs>